This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen yearning to live free again. The right to live and breathe here to the one and only CR podcast. It is a brand new week here. Monday, the 20th of September. It is now the fall. We're embarking on the last week or so of this fiscal year and we'll likely get to almost 2 million illegal aliens caught at our border but you know what's so sad I never would have imagined me being the border expert for so many years having written about it, covered it for so many years in great detail, that we would have the greatest invasion of all time at our border and that wouldn't even be the biggest story because folks as I mentioned on Constitution Day on Friday We no longer have liberty in this country. So we can't even worry about saving the country, the culture, immigration, this and that. We have to worry about being trapped in a death cult where the biggest liberty is the right to life, the right to live. And they are blocking any ability of us to escape the virus that they created, by the way, and then they enhanced. Now, straight up, numerous studies showing People that are vaccinated carry a higher viral load. And they're making it impossible to get treated. So I do want to get to the border this week and cover it. We'll be out again in the middle of the week. I know this my schedule's been a little bit messed up. But we're going to have another show today with, you guessed it, a COVID treating doctor. But this one's a real special one who has left the ICU because of the vaccine mandate, so we're going to talk all things vaccine, treatment, but most importantly, freedom, how to take control of your own health care, because that is the ultimate freedom, because your life depends upon it. That is the ultimate liberty. How to evacuate from the morass of the government, corporate, Nazi cartel. That That is what we need to do. Last week, I wrote a blueprint about a dozen different things that Republican governors and legislatures should be doing, but of course aren't doing. It was just a talking point. They're on to the next thing. As predicted, not doing anything. Ultimately, our Constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other, as John Adams said. And this is where we find ourselves today. Now, today's sponsor, folks, if you need legal help, religious liberty, sanctity of life, even parental rights. There aren't too many people that are going to be there for you, just like we don't have too many doctors there for you if you need to be treated. Alliance Defending Freedom, they have you covered. They rely on the generosity of patriots like you, totally pro bono, um, and they need your help more than ever with the family, faith, and freedom under attack. Go to adflegal.org slash CR. Get your copy of ADF's ebook titled Generational Wins. Um, help with your tax-deductible donation so they could help us in America's highest courts. It's an all-of-the-above approach. I mean, we need we need to fight wherever we can, certainly not rely solely on the courts, but America is stronger, stronger when we stand together. Join the growing number of Americans pledging their support for freedom and liberty. Donate today, adflegal.org slash CR, adflegal.org slash CR. Now, There's a lot going on. I'm going to have a column out today. They're going after the monoclonals. They're going after nasal irrigation. They're going after everything. After everything. So first off, just a public service announcement. Um, There's a website I want to share with you, earlycovidcare.org. Earlycovidcare.org has just some interesting information, helpful information about treating COVID, where to find some people who, who will treat it. Um, I want to let you in on something I'm working on, and hopefully we can get up as soon as possible, and that is a crowdsourcing page for Dr. Eric Henson. 
We've had him on, um, I believe, one time, maybe two weeks ago. He's the head neck surgeon ENT from Palestine, Texas, that is literally treating people at his specialty clinic um, for free and then doing a bunch of telehealth. So many of you in the audience have benefited from his unbelievable generosity. Um, you know, he wouldn't want me saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Not only has he given his care for free, but I've heard of people that he wound up paying for their prescriptions because he, he thought they couldn't afford it. Um, he's not looking for money, but a lot of you are asking me, what could we do? What could we do? So I was originally thinking of calling his secretary and saying, hey, like, does he like wine? Does he like, you know, I don't know. What, what, what does he like that people could send as a gift? But then I decided a better idea. Why not help him help more of us? So I'm going to try to start a crowdsourcing page where we could donate generously and I'll let you know when it's up so he could, you know, pay for more oxygen for his patients in person, more medication, supplies, maybe even hire um, some more staff uh, because he is really, really, I mean, he is just, he's the best. Even if he doesn't have any, um, any time whatsoever, he finds a way of making time truly a treasure of a human being. So, you know, today we're going to have someone else on that you could use her services. She she needs to charge because this is now her sole living. Um, but, you know, again, she'll work with you as well if you can't afford it. We'll have her on in a couple of minutes. Now, as you well know, the government wants us trapped. Remember we talked about death panels, rationing care. So now, September 14th, last week, the HHS announced that they're rationing the monoclonals. They claim they don't have enough, which is which is bull because they could always make more anyway. Right? You're sitting and blowing up the joint and you have something that's 85% effective. Why wouldn't you put all the money into that? All these freaking people that are vaccinated are getting the stupid... They're, they're, they have to go for the monoclonals anyway because the vaccine doesn't work. So why are you dumping it more into the vaccine and not the monoclonals? But then again, it's about control. See... What happened was, here's the thing. On, on, they're, they're, on one end of the spectrum is the vaccines. That's where they control you. Um, I mean, the, the information that's coming out on people not getting their periods, their menstrual cycles, this, the, the side effects are just unbelievable as it comes out. They have you trapped. On the other end of the spectrum is independent doctors treating patients with cheap therapeutics. That's ultimate freedom. The middle ground was the monoclonals. It's created by Big Pharma, very expensive. So on the one hand, they couldn't attack it because it's, you know, people with lobbyists. But on the other hand, it's the one thing that actually worked, that they produced. And it was before the vaccine. So I don't think the government realized what was happening there. So the middle ground was, we'll pay for it. They get their money as, as they demand. But we're not, and we can't ban it because, you know, we, we it's Big Pharma. But we'll just keep it very quiet. No one's going to know about it. Governor Ron DeSantis from Florida made it very popular. So now it almost became a modus operandi in Florida and other you know, people are hearing about it all over the country. Oh, wait a minute. So it's not like I have to quake in my boots hoping I don't get the virus and then when I get it, I'm screwed. You go right away and as soon as you can, get the treatment. Wait a minute, but that's freedom. <clears throat> you're, you're evacuating from the system and you're surviving it and that's going to get rid of covid and it's going to get rid of COVID fascism, and we can't have that. So when Biden announced a while back that he is, what was it? It was September 9th when he announced the mandate. He said he's going to bulldoze these governors. This, this is what he meant. He promised to increase the flow of the monoclonals by 50%. He's now cutting it off by 50%. Because they want you trapped. They want to only give it to the people they want to give it to. So now you're stuck. Which is why it's we need to fight this, but it's all the more important we need to push all the other different techniques and get as many people prophylaxis, or at least if you're, unfortunately now the problem is not enough supply. So, um, you know, you have to use your own judgment if you don't want to blow the wad and, you know, you're scared that you're not going to have it if you actually get the virus, then at least the first second, you know, you bomb away at it with everything. But 
there is now a hit piece in the New York Times. So the media, again, the government can't hit the monoclonals. The government just, oh, this is a shortage. We have to have equality of the distribution. But we know what it's really about. They don't like it. And the reason I know that is because the New York Times, which is the stenographer for the Biden administration, has an article out titled, They Shunned COVID Vaccines But Embraced Antibody Treatments. And they basically frame the monoclonals all around anti-vax. All the while ignoring that the majority of people seeking them now are vaccinated and the vaccine's not working and they need treatment just like someone who's not vaccinated. But they make it all about that. Because to them, it is a bad. To us, it's not. To us, we're like, I don't care who you are. I don't care your politics. We're going to get you treatment. And some of these doctors, they'll do it downright for free. These SOBs are all about the politics of the vaccine. But here's the problem. As Governor DeSantis pointed out, in Broward County, 52% of the patients that received treatment were vaccinated. 69% of those over 60 we're vaccinated in Miami-Dade. Almost 60% of everybody that's been treated at the Tropical Park site has been vaccinated. 73% of the patients treated at that site who are over 60 were vaccinated. 73%. Yeah, yeah, I get it that about 90% of that cohort is vaccinated. Again, if you, they got the vaccine a little bit more recently, a little bit more recent and, and Moderna or J&J versus Pfizer, there's a little bit of waning efficacy there. In a month or two, it will all be over anyway, and everyone knows that. Everyone knows. Which, by the way, is why the FDA voted against the booster. It's not because they, they, everyone's like, oh, they finally found their senses. It's not true. It's not true. Um, not at all. It's because they didn't want the message going out that the vaccine doesn't work. So it's kind of hard to say you have to get the first shot when... We're already on to boosters. That's the only reason why they did it. So it's not coming from a good thing. But anyway, this is the war. As I warned you, I said, watch them declare war on the monoclonals. And of course they did that. Anything that works. And that's where we are. They don't want you to take control of your health. <clears throat> so today we are going to have a guest on to discuss how to take control of your health. And very apropos for today, our sponsor of this interview today is Gainful. Obviously, one of the best ways to take control of your own health is fitness, it's exercise. And we all have busy lifestyles. I am like a dead as a doorknob in the morning. And then by the time the evening comes along, I'm so just emotionally and physically exhausted from work. I I just don't, I never felt like exercising. Gainful was a game changer for me. It's a personalized nutrition system formulated just for your body and your exercise goals. So it's a terrific pre-workout concoction, but it's not standard. You go, here's what you do. You go online to Gainful. It's gainful.com slash conservative. It's a five-minute quiz. They don't give you a runaround. It's just, it's no more than five minutes. Your body weight, some information about you, the type of exercise you do, and boom, they, they personalize your formula. They deliver the supplements with no shipping charge every month. So, and, and, and you, you know, you don't have to be committed. You can cancel any time. Um, it's, it's given me so much more energy um, to, to have much more effective exercises. And they actually have on-staff registered dietitians you could call on, have a one-on-one -on -one consultation with. Um, it comes along with your subscription here. Rigorous quality control. Um, and of course, when they're trying to help you, they're not going to harm you and add garbage, artificial flavors, colors, or sweeteners like some others do. Um, so that's another big, big um, selling point for me when I have all these doctors on the show saying that stuff is poison. <laughs> that The last thing you want to do is have your pre-exercise uh, formula mixed with that garbage. Start your personalized fitness journey today with Gainful. Get 20 bucks off your personalized supplements. Go to gainful.com slash conservative. That's gainful, G-A-I-N-F-U-L.com slash conservative for 20 bucks off personalized nutrition made for your taste.
Now, as I promised earlier, our next guest is a return guest, um, and we did not cover enough of our bases last time, but boy, oh boy, do we have more to talk about today. Uh, Dr. Molly James was on with us a couple weeks ago. She has been working in New York City ICUs since day one, ground zero, March 2020. She has seen the gamut of what this virus could do to people, the maltreatment that people have been receiving based on government protocols, uh, the things that actually should be working and could be working if they'd only be able to try. But there's good news and bad news we have to share with you. On the one hand, it looks like she is getting kicked out because of the vaccine mandate, even though she already has natural immunity. But on the other hand, her experience might possibly plow forward for us a new paradigm where we have brilliant, successful doctors that are being forced to leave the system, but perhaps they can do more for us outside of the system with a capital S, and they could actually do what they weren't able to do anyway when they had their jobs and treat people in accordance with science, care, compassion, rather than politics and greed. That is what we're going to explore and much, much more. Dr. James, thanks so much for coming back on CR Podcast. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for having me back. A lot more to talk about this time. And now that I'm not constrained by employers, um, I can be fairly fairly forthcoming with some recent observations. So. so we're going to start right with it, right with what has happened to you. Obviously, the president announced his mandate, but you know the health systems were really already doing it without the federal mandate. Um, forcing people like you to get vaccinated. Um, mind you that, you know, patients you see in the in the ICU, um, they couldn't be around a better person than someone who already had prior infection like you do. So you are forced to basically either get tested all the time or get the vaccine or leave. What is your status and what sort of lessons are you learning from this in the broader macro sense how many more people are there out there like you? Yeah, so basically about two months ago, I was I had three different jobs. One was a virtual job, one was um, based in St. Louis, and then one was based in New York. And one by one, um, as of Tuesday, I will have no hospital left, which is very surreal for me. Um, so what they did is one by one, they came out with the vaccine mandates. And the first was was my job in St. Louis, and I decided to go in for a medical exemption that based, based on natural immunity um, that was basically denied. And so I went in with a religious exemption, which I also have, and that was granted. So I kind of thought I was safe, no problem there. Um, but not long after that, they came out with a policy, a completely new set of policies for patients who are, quote, unvaccinated. Um, so basically you can't be around other people. You can't be closer than six feet from anyone. You can never take your mask off in the hospital. You can't eat with other people. So it was a very discriminatory policy and you had to be swab tested every week in order to keep your job. And that was only unvaccinated people. So I made the decision, um, that I would not be participating in any kind of discrimination like that. And I told my medical directors, you know, this isn't a public health effort. Um, if you want to screen everybody, because we are seeing some infections, um, a number of vaccinated people had come in with infections and been out for 10 days. Um, if we want to do it as a public health effort and do it the right way, I have no problem looking at that. But I'm certainly not going to participate in something that's discrimination. Um, so I was notified that I was on suspension. And that's my current status right now at that position. Um, I also, the virtual job, I applied for a religious exemption, which, which was declined, and I'm not sure that they can decline them. I was given no reason why or explanation or name to appeal to, um, so I resigned from that position. That was a virtual position for my kitchen. So, again, it makes no sense that I would have to have a mandate. Again, natural immunity trumps everything, but to work out of my kitchen at my office seeing ICU patients. So they did the same thing this week in New York. Um, Governor Cuomo, before he left, took a swing at doctors and basically said that all doctors and healthcare workers had to be vaccinated. So I was notified that if I'm not by the end of the month, that I will lose my hospital privileges. So that's it in a nutshell. 
Wow. And how many other people do you think are in the same boat as you? I mean, are we going to see a large exodus from the hospitals? I, I, I think it will be interesting to see. I think there's about 10 to 20% that are hardliners like myself that have planned for this and are willing to, to take the leap and say no. I think there's probably another 10 to 20% who want to, but for whatever reason feel like they're not in a financial position or um, would have limited options to do that. And they will end up, you know, going along with the testing or doing whatever they need to do to keep their job because they love their job and they love serving. No, absolutely. And and ultimately, unfortunately, it, it boils down to that personal decision. But it seems like with you, it's two things. It's a principled stance, but also you seem to be very concerned medically about the shots, about taking mm-hmm. them, aside from just principally. Could you give a little bit of a glimpse as an ICU doctor what you're seeing? Because, again, the official narrative is this is like Tums or water or aspirin. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no problem with this. It's just a question of how many boosters we give you. There is no risk whatsoever. I mean, zero, nada. Okay, it doesn't exist. What are you seeing in the hospitals? What sort of issues, what sort of concerns do you have that you are willing to give up the job you love not to get the shot? So uh, initially, right, it's not medically necessary. So everything we do in medicine, especially through the third payer parties, you can't do something that's not medically necessary. It won't be paid for. It won't be covered. So you're right. On principle, that's step one. You always look at the risk and benefit of anything. And if a person who has natural immunity gains no benefit, so all you do is assume risk. So that risk, you're right. We've been very misled on that. Um, So in my ICU, Basically, I've seen patients, when, I, when you talk to them and you put things together, what I'm seeing is very disturbing. Um, I had a patient who came in after an infection. He waited the 90 days to get vaccinated and presented to my ICU 24 hours later with a cardiac arrest. Um, I've seen patients who had serious co- cardiac complications resulting in open heart surgery emergently or ECMO, which is the heart-lung bypass machine, you know, in things that couldn't be explained and the only major risk factor that they had in their history was they had been vaccinated within 60 days prior. Um, I talked to a patient who had had an elective open heart surgery or coronary bypass, and when when I reviewed the chart and talked to him, his symptoms, he had basically had fatigue for six months and um, ended up having a multi-vessel bypass. And when I talked to him, guess what he had had about six months prior? (laughs) He Mm. had the vaccine. And so, you know, you start seeing this pattern enough, enough times and you start to connect the dots. And so what I'm seeing in real life is reflecting what I'm hearing from colleagues who are speaking out and is reflecting what I'm hearing from the community. Um, There was a viral Facebook page uh, post not too long ago where they were looking for people who had lost loved ones who refused the vaccine. And the comments, I think there were 165,000 comments, and they were people who had lost loved ones from after the vaccine for unexplained reasons. And, and these are the stories we never hear about. You always hear about the guy, oh, you know, I'm sorry. You know, they'll, they'll make sure it's like a guy with a Confederate flag or something. You know, <laughs> it's always it's always someone that prototypically could be you like viewed as kind of a white Southern conservative. By the way, never the demographic that's the most unvaccinated, actually, which which is also more likely to be in the hospital, too. But that's a different story. It's all political. Every single article. Oh, I wish I would have gotten vaccinated. No one will say I wish I would have had Dr. Molly James prescribe me, you know, uh, early treatment <laughs> from day one. You know, that's another yeah. way of dealing dealing with it. But the point is, what yeah. also what you don't see is the guy was like, damn, I shouldn't have gotten the thing. And they're sick with it. And then the people that ultimately die. So could you explain what you are seeing? Um, I want to move, you know, talk about cancer a little bit. But 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 I want to finish this discussion on heart because I was very scared. I have, um, you know, someone very close to uh, I almost put him in touch with one of the, one of the frontline doctors within 24 hours of getting mm-hmm. the second shot. And again, he had prior infection, and several studies have shown they are more prone to severe reactions from the vaccine than people who are, um, you know, of, of, of uh, naive to the virus. So right. he had. Which is he another told, reason I don't yeah. get it. 
Yeah, because you had it already, meaning not just that you don't need it, but you're also more at risk. But he, he right. told me his his pulse rate was up to 120, and he really was very scared. I think it did subside in the end, but it, this is what happened the day after he got it. His, his pulse rate was usually like 55. It was up to 120. And what, yeah. so what is going on with that? What What is it with these heart issues? Well, if you think about it, it provokes a major inflammatory response, right? So it does put physiologic stress on the body. And there was actually an interesting thread I was following on Twitter. It was a doctor who had gone into the VAERS database and she had in it, by hand pulled out complications. And what she found were like blood sugars were going up, they were going down, they were very much uncontrolled in the, in the post-operative period. Um, multiple blood clots. Um, Dr. Tess Laurie has, has spoken on this as well when she reviewed the yellow card system in the UK. So the, uh, not even to mention the, the women's menstrual issues um, that are, again, surfacing in the news this weekend. So there are a lot of things that people are seeing across specialties. Um, I have a friend who has seen a huge rise in skin cancer as a result of this. So, you know, the problem. Now, how, how do you trace are, skin cancer back to the, to, to the vaccine? So that's a good question. I don't think we, it's not a direct correlation. And it's the same thing with the patients I'm talking about in the ICU, right? You know, somebody who has an issue and their only risk factors, they had a vaccine 30 to 60 days prior, you know, I can't draw the direct line, but I can. So you're saying there's no ICD codes that are being typed in COVID vaccine reaction. These are not being put into theirs. They're not being recorded. But what you're saying is someone who has put in many years, you are a critical care surgeon, you know, ICU doctor. So you see the nature of what comes in to the ICU mm-hmm. at critical care, putting aside like car accidents and, and trauma, things like that, just in terms of like illnesses. Mm-hmm. And you're saying mm-hmm. this is really flummoxing you. It's not like, oh yeah, another day I just found a guy, you know, heart failure, okay. Um, you're saying it usually has a pattern that leads up to that, that you're f- finding being broken by the last mm-hmm. couple months. Yeah, and I come from the surgeon's mentality, right? My entire training, we look at our procedures that we do for patients, and we look at their outcomes. And if their outcomes weren't optimal, if there were any complications or side effects, we we trace that and we see what did we do, what could we have done better, how are they linked, what did we miss? Um, and so I come from that mindset. And so this is just another medical intervention where, especially since it's mm. so new, we should be diligent in following up on anything that we can't explain otherwise. You know, I certainly don't attribute everything I see in the ICU to someone who's had a vaccine to that. There's not a there's not a causation. There's not a correlation all of the time. But again, when you see somebody who has a cardiac arrest 24 hours after an intervention, that's very high on my list of things that we need to consider was a causative agent. Especially when the FDA and their own approval of um, the BioNTech version, I guess, of Pfizer shot when they said blatantly mm-hmm. that the VAR system is not sufficient in surveillance for myocarditis, just that one alone, and mm-hmm. the, you know this was their own admission, but then they go and do it anyway. We've seen data from Israel's um, MDA um, is their uh, universal EMT service there. They have one that services the entire country, so they have pretty good uniform data. And, you know, uh, MIT Israeli professor who's, I think, here, here in, uh, in America, he's at MIT, he went through the data of cardiac calls to EMS services. And in Israel, it was just astonishing to watch those numbers. And they factored in pre-COVID, COVID before the shots and COVID after the shots, you know, because obviously COVID does have the thrombotic element to it as well. And you want to vet that out too. Is it from the virus? Is it from the vaccine? And it was, there was an mm-hmm. unmistakable surge uh, post-January, um, which is when they started with the the shots there. And we're just being put in the dark. And, and this is the thing. There's, it, it's almost like government is channeling us into this one lane no monoclonals for you, no ivermectin for you, no nothing for you, yes shots for you, no surveillance on that. Yes, you know, um, over over uh, surveil the COVID side effects, but then, then under-report the vaccine side effects. 
And it's all wrapped in, it's not any one observation, but you put it together. You know, I told my audience before you came on, the New York Times now over the weekend came out with a hit piece on the monoclonals. So the government, the government can't hit it, right? Because it just, you know, it's big pharma, they're not allowed to do that. So they're just saying, oh, there's a shortage. But then, you know, the New York Times works hand in glove with them. They're like, this is the latest tool of those shunning vaccines. They're going for the monoclonals. So they're kind of hitting that. And that's what you're wondering. What is the motivation? Um, my, my, my question to you is this. Okay, so enough editorializing for me. I want to hear more from you in the EC, in ICUs. Your colleagues there. So, you know, at the end of the day, you cannot miss the fact that people are getting very sick who are vaccinated. You know, when this started, it wasn't so much, but as we predicted, as it was going to wear off, it got more. So they're seeing it's not working. They're seeing that remdesivir doesn't work. Do they not get that? Or, Or are they just totally content with the status quo? So I think there's a couple of issues. Number one is related to the vaccines. We are completely disincentivized to connect the dots. Um, we have, there have been public statements by boards, board certifications, the uh, Federal Society or uh, Federation of State Medical Boards have said that any doctors who speak to misinformation about the vaccines, you know, could have um, um, punitive action against their, their licenses. Um, and what's defined as misinformation these days is a, is a fairly, fairly moving target. To me, speaking about things that we're directly observing and concerns that we have that directly regard our uh, have our patients in mind should be exempt from that and you know are e- easily defendable. However, not a, not everyone agrees with that assessment. You know, mm. under enormous pressure to not link these things together because the uh, the, ma- the majority of our colleagues are on the vaccine bandwagon. That that's what it seems. Although for a while there were a lot of nurses that seemed to not be getting it, um, which was very interesting. But I'm I'm assuming the coercion really cut into those numbers of resistance. But what I find interesting is there was a devilish part of me that was cheering on you losing your job. Um, <laughs> and the reason is because I was thinking, wait a minute. So if they're going to kick out some of the best doctors now, well. The system anyway is a problem. I mean, it's hard, you know, let's face it, you were handcuffed to a large degree even um, when you were, when you had the job. So how about where you're headed? Could you tell the audience a little bit about some of your ideas, what you would like to do, what you'd like to work with other people to do to say, you know what, Mm -hmm. let's make lemonade out of these lemons and actually start from scratch and pursue the avenues of healthcare that we always wanted to do but weren't free to do, and mm-hmm. starting certainly with this pandemic, what are some of the things you're hoping to do now that you're looking to create a new job? Yeah, so let me back that up though one second because you asked me, like, don't they know that remdesivir doesn't work, right? And my exit to that. So absolutely, I have had this conversation with all of my colleagues. They're good people. They want their patients to do well. I don't know how they can accept immortality on ventilated patients of 60% plus. Like, I don't know how they're not looking for other avenues. And the defense of that I've heard is I'm following the NIH, NIH guidelines, to which I've pushed back quite a bit, um, that we know remdesivir doesn't work. And I just, I was trying to work within the system to, to, um, to help make it better. But I brought the information on ivermectin to all of my medical directors. I told them that that is there. I've seen it work. I had two great success stories out of the ICU, and I was penalized by it was pulled off the shelf. So I was kind of in a position, too, where I was saying I have an ethical dilemma working here because I can't look patients in the eye and tell them I'm doing the very best for them when they're on the verge of being intubated or dying when I know there's medication that could benefit them. So... Basically, I've accepted over the last three to four months, I've seen this coming. And so I've launched my own clinic. It's called the James Clinic. And in talking with a lot of your viewers, to be honest, or listeners, to be honest, um, you know, there's a huge need out there because so many people are so untrusting of their doctors and of hospitals right now. 
um, a couple of people told me, you know, they spoke with their doctor about the vaccine and asked, like, why should I take it? Like, you know, is this a good thing for me? And one of them was told, well, we have to throw it away anyway, so you should probably get it. And another was told, just take the vaccine because I need to keep my job. Yep. You know, so so patients, they're losing faith and trust in the system that's out there. So I'm hoping to I'm recruiting right now to build a system that they can trust where medical freedom is appreciated, where we trust, we partner with patients to make recommendations and educate them how to take care of themselves. And we can do that in a virtual environment. And I believe that a network of like minded physicians is going to rise up fairly quickly because it's not just primary docs. It's, you know. I never dreamed as an ICU doctor I could work without a hospital, but I'm going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we're going to try to recreate that at home for people so they don't end up going to the hospital. Exactly, exactly. So I want to I want to talk about outpatient and inpatient. Your two ideas. So your outpatient mm-hmm. already, you've been doing that, and now obviously more and more. If you're out of the hospital, you have mm-hmm. a little bit more time to deal with that. So could you tell? I mean, again, I, this this is no secret between the two of us that. People are very desperate. I mean, there's thousands of listeners here, and everyone has friends and family members that are getting it, scared of getting it, on the verge of getting it, exposed to it, and 99% of them do not have access to a doctor that it's not even will treat them, um, you know, properly, will treat them at all. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. the typical physician obviously says we're following NIH protocol, which means literally a blank piece of paper, absolutely nothing. So people are, Uh are desperate. Um, you know, our friends at uh, myfreedoctor.com, it was a lofty idea, it was a great idea, and it was working mm-hmm. until this wave because it was mm-hmm. kind of, you know, a little bit more off-season. But once the wave mm-hmm. came in, it's just they don't have enough people, so then people get disgruntled because they can't get access to people. Um, mm-hmm. What could wh- – how do you feel you could help more people? Can you tell people a little bit about your website, ivermectincan.com? Mm-hmm. Uh, as in C-A-N, it can, like, yes, we can, ivermectincan.com. Yeah. What type of services you're offering and what people should roughly expect? Yeah, I have basically three plans. Um, one is the prevention consult, right? So I'm well now. I want to be prepared in case I or my loved one gets COVID. I want to meet with you ahead of time and just know what my options are. Or I want to start on a preventative regimen of ivermectin or see if that's right for me. So that's one, that's one consult. Um, people who are acutely ill now, those people I'm trying to, you know, when they reach out and say, I'm sick now, I need help. I am trying to personally see them within 24 hours. Um, it doesn't always work, especially when I've been in the ICU and I'm here all day and then trying to see patients at night or in the evenings. Um, but they're prioritized for sure. The challenge with patients who are sick now is trying to find a pharmacy to get them medication. Um, And I would remind patients, I heard you and Dr. Corey speaking about, you know, if you have a cold, don't wait until you can't breathe to reach out. Um, So if you have an upper respiratory infection, I would get tested for COVID early on so that we have time to get connected and we have time to get you medications, regardless of who you go to, because that process is going to take two to three days in some areas especially over the weekend. Um, I then have a third tract, which is the long-haul COVID. So patients who've had COVID, who are having persistent symptoms, um, looking, you know, that's that's a perfect area for functional medicine to address. Um, so I see those patients as well. So that is your outpatient, um, you know, telehealth. And obviously, again, you're going to do what you can um, mm-hmm. and you know, you know, look, it's, it's not, it's not easy for anyone. And certainly you're understaffed. You don't have enough time. Um, and everyone's really in the same boat. So people just have to understand it is what it is. Um, you know, you could try a few different people and you're definitely a great option, but the reality is it's all on the shoulders of, of a handful of people. So the other thing that, that you're looking at is this, um, clinic idea, um, mm-hmm. And I've I've talked to Dr. Henson, a couple others about it as well. This idea of starting with COVID, and again, we'd eventually branch into other things as well, to evacuate mm-hmm. from the system where you have a network of doctors that have clinics that maybe are loosely affiliated and have the same philosophy 
and you could be a mm-hmm. member of a network, um, maybe right. an annual fee or something. And then that way, mm-hmm. you know, most things you can do telehealth, the things that need to be seen in person and dealt with in person, hopefully eventually you'll, ha- you know, we would have people in every state and you could travel to see people. But what does this look like with COVID? What are you trying to set up in your home mm-hmm. state of Missouri? And mm-hmm. what are some of the barriers from a policy standpoint? Yeah, so so on a on a small level, something that we can get going fairly quickly is an infusion center, right? So an outpatient treatment center. So people who are on the verge, you know, they might need to go to the ER, but they're scared they'll be admitted or they need oxygen. We can bring them in. We can get them set up with home oxygen. We can do the antibody infusions if we can get them from HHS. And then maybe we do a vitamin C infusion and get them a dose of ivermectin. We get them sent, set up to be followed um, acutely. Um, what, I, what my dream is, what I really would like to have is my own hospital and be able to accept transfers. Your inbox, my inbox, every doctor who's been on this show, we get voicemails and emails and messages on social media of people who have loved ones in the, excuse me, loved ones in the hospital and they're not making progress. And the families try to advocate for their loved ones and they try to, you know, work with the doctors to incorporate some of these early treatment protocols and the math plus protocol that we know are helpful. And they're just really butting up against a wall. And, you know, the hospitals have really lost the trust and faith of of the patients and the families in those instances. And I would love to have a solution for them. Um, Obviously (laughs) there's a huge barrier to entry for that for a number of reasons, financial, logistical, legal, um, you know, you can't just open a hospital in the middle of nowhere. There's a certificate of need and things like that. But I also think where there's a will, there's a way. And there's a lot of people who want this to happen. So if there's any way possible, if there's anyone out there who can reach out that has the the brilliant minds who can make that happen, I'm interested and I'm invested in that. Terrific. Um, We do have, in addition to a lot of desperate potential patients, we also do have, you know, clinicians and doctors, maybe nurse practitioners who listen to this show. I get a lot of emails from people. Are you looking to connect with any of them? Um, I would say yes. Again, I'm, I'm just getting overwhelmed with patient requests right now. Um, and I'm just trying to grow, find people who can maybe grow with me and who are interested. I know a lot of people are leaving their jobs or are expecting that they'll be leaving their jobs due to the vaccine mandates and other, you know, just it be becoming an untenable situation. So I would love to partner with those people. Um, I don't know what that looks like right now, but rapidly evolving to build into something. So, yeah, sure. So like how about to, we do this, um, folks? You could you could email me dharwitz at blazemedia.com if you are you know a doctor. And either you have a job and you want to double up or you're in the same predicament as Dr. James where you're looking at leaving your job. You're like, man, I need I need uh, another job. But on the other hand, I want to help save humanity. Well, this might be a great way to do it. And I could, um, you know, set you up uh, because this is really one of the greatest things I think we've talked about before that as terrible of a predicament as this is, we've really been able to put great minds together um, great patriots, people that are in medicine for the, you know, all, all the altruistic reasons that got most people into it to begin with. And, you know, even more than earning a living, most of all, they want to treat people, they want to help save lives. Um, that That's really the ultimate pro-life issue. Um, you know, one of the points I made with a guest on, it was a doctor, but also running for governor in Minnesota I, on, on uh, Friday, I said, look, you know, you have these Republicans running for office. And I'm pro-life. I'm pro-gun. Like, dude, like that just doesn't speak to where we are now. If you're not talking about um, the COVID fascism and and the the war on treatment and 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 governments, you know, the infringement upon the ultimate liberty, which is the right to live, um, the right to access. You know, they're the ones always saying you have a right to health care. It's very interesting. Um, I agree. I I actually agree with Bernie Sanders, but with a little bit of a rub. Um, any doctor and any patient has the right to have a contractual agreement to pursue any form of treatment they want, any payment schedule they want. That is a right. 
Um, you don't have a right to handouts, but that that is a, a real right, and that, of course, is being infringed upon. What are some other ideas you think that people like me could advocate for, uh, red state legislators, governors, could help facilitate some of what you want to recreate outside the system? Well, first of all, we already have pharmacy law, and so I'm not sure why we're recreating that. Um, every time my patient goes to fill a prescription, the rules shouldn't be different, and they shouldn't be different today than tomorrow. You know, one day we need a diagnosis code, and the next day it's not covered under insurance, and the next day you can't have that many, and the next day I can only fill it for X, Y, and Z. You know, there's a pharmacy law that's already in force, and it needs to be enforced. <laughs> we need we need to be able to we need a reliable supply and source for our patients to get medications that are FDA approved that we're using off label. So that's the most immediate need that I see. Um, we need protections for doctors who are willing to speak to what we're seeing because this is an ethical obligation. But there are a lot of doctors who are afraid or not connecting the dots um, just out of the bias for keeping their jobs. Um, you know, I've always been suspicious of the employment model of medicine. And I think we're seeing the conflicts of interest come to light. So, you know, we need to get after any, any administrator who's telling a doctor how to practice medicine that needs to be addressed. Um, I don't know how we do that legally, but um, in all of the employment contracts I remember signing, I never saw anything that, that everything said the doctor's ultimately responsible for the care of the patient. And so that needs to be somehow enforced. Um, the certificate of need issue is huge because we can't build another system when we're locked into the system that we have. Uh, and, and could you describe a little bit of how that works? Isn't it the fact that it, it's not just the government, but it's, again, the government crony corporate partnership where it has to be approved by the board to start another hospital, but guess who is on that right. board? The incumbent powers of the incumbent hospitals, right? Yeah, and it's different from state to state. So I remember I lived in Kansas City at one time, and Missouri has a certificate of need, um, and you can't have a surgery center, and I believe Kansas you can. So on the Kansas side, there were all kinds of independent freestanding surgery centers. And I think right now we need as many diverse options and decentralization as we can get. Um, so that's important. I think some of the regulations are barriers to doctors doing their independent practice. So one of them is the, the requirement to have an electronic medical record. Um, I remember a colleague telling me he spent $75,000 a year on computers and his EMR. Um, if you're working in a primary care clinic, that's three months of your year, potentially of your income that you're spending just on your computers. So that's not a tenable situation. Um, so those are just some of the things that come to the top of my mind about what we can be doing. Wow. Wow. That, I mean, that, that, that's a tall order, but look, I mean, a lot of these legislators are getting back for a special session for redistricting. This is a lot more important even than redistricting. There's no reason why they shouldn't be able to address this. I look at a state like Missouri, and there's no reason why someone like you shouldn't be called in before um, you know, the health committees and the Senate and House there in Jefferson City and say, hey, look, you know, we already have infusion centers for the monoclonal antibodies. Why not bulk them up, and why not have – um, at least one doctor at each, uh, you know, facility where they could also prescribe. So it's a multi-pronged approach and they prescribe different mm -hmm. drugs for those who come in based on their symptoms and their needs, like we would do anywhere. And states right. just need to start doing this. And then the NIH guidance is out the window. Once state states do this, it's over with. Um, then that becomes the right. standard. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, th th this is, this is it. Obviously, there's a lot of things people could be doing preventatively. We talk about that every day. But before we go, I just want to get your thoughts on that. Since we spoke last, are you seeing any other promising early, late prophylactic treatment at any stage that you feel hasn't been emphasized enough? Um, again, I think the main thing is when people ahead of, like plan ahead of time. And I talk to a lot of people who are traveling um, I, I specifically talk to them, like carrier meds with you. If you're traveling internationally, I give them a whole pharmacy of things to take because you don't want to get to Mexico or Europe and get sick and not be able to get home. So that's just a message I wanted to get out there. Um, I listen to the same people you're listening to. You know, I, I've incorporated phenofibrate. Um, I've incorporated finasteride. 
um, budesonide is one of the things I use. We want to make sure everyone's using those things correctly and at the time of illness, not preventatively. Um, sure. I think I think ivermectin and monoclonal antibodies are kind of the mainstay of what I do, but there are a number of other things for symptomatic relief and adjuvants that I think have a really important role. And we just have to individualize those treatments for each patient that comes through. Yep. We used to call it internal medicine, you know, practice of medicine. <laughs> that's kind of what it's all about. Yeah. It's a, there's somehow a big black hole. If you say it's bronchitis, if you call it pneumonia, it's a different story. Um, but somehow you call it this name and uh, that's it. You know, you can't treat it. It is the issue of our time. It's the issue of a lifetime because you can't have liberty without life. And and if our life now depends on um, the government coming up with their solution while blocking our solutions to a problem that, frankly, increasingly, there's more evidence they funded and likely created, um, then we have no liberty. I mean, and that's that's the thing. I, I can't get hyped up about any other issue before this. Um, any parting thoughts you have for doctors that are confronted with this, you know, this mandate, some things that they should consider when deciding whether to take the plunge like you are or just, look, you know, I'll get the shot and uh, keep my job? Well, I think doctors who are in the employment model, if you look at who who's helping people and who's not, it's the independent doctors who are entrepreneurial, they're problem solvers, they're creative, they think outside the box. That's who's taking care of America right now. And the people who have chosen to be employed and take what's, I mean, somewhat necessary, but an easier road where you have a guaranteed paycheck, you have a guaranteed stream of patients. There's not always a lot of thinking outside the box. Doesn't mean they're not great people and some really good doctors, but they don't know the infrastructure. They don't know how to get the infrastructure up quickly. They don't know. I can just go say, you know, charge a fee. Like you can solve all these problems that you're, you get a no from administration and you think your hands are tied and you're handcuffed to the system and you're not like you're, you can go be a business person and start a business and take care of people. And, you know, at the end of the day, we have an oath to patients and that is our number one commitment. And that's our number one obligation. So I was already planning to leave the system to get insurance and employers and payers and all of those people out of the doctor patient relationship and everyone who's thinking about doing it, if you take that leap of faith, you will be rewarded greatly. That that is what I'm increasingly hearing from a lot of doctors that, you know, you go for the monthly fee or annual fee model and then, you know, you get 110% of the doctor, you know. Then that way you guys could calculate roughly how much you want to make. Okay, that's in the bag done. Now I'm going to dedicate it all to my patient. You always give out your your cell phone number, right? I mean, people text you, follow-ups. And things my like that. So get my cell phone number. That's part of my consult. You get my cell phone number. You need something. I'll text you. I'll call you. I'll FaceTime you. You know, if I video someone, I can tell how they're breathing over the phone. So mm. that's so wow. it's so easy and it's so valuable. <laughs> wow. And, and that's the thing. And that way people feel that they're not alone. It's the antithesis of the stay at home alone until you're, you can't breathe uh, protocol. Very successful protocol that, that, I mean, that is the NIH protocol, literally, stay at home until you can't breathe. And and this yeah. is the opposite. This is someone who's always going to follow up with you. So the big thing with you is that you get the follow-up, which is very important just to make sure things are progressing. Because, you know, the, the protocol, a protocol is a protocol, and it's certainly a lot better than doing nothing. But I think what I've noticed with when I send, when I refer people in my audience to people like you and some of the other frontline doctors is that it really matters who you are, the, the progression of the disease, the timing, the symptoms, and and that's when you need tweaks. Okay, I think, you know, you're going to need a little bit more of the steroid route. And, and okay, you, you might be at risk to developing uh, bacterial pneumonia, so you need the antibiotics and, you know, different things like that. That it's just that's what a doctor is there for. That 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 is what practicing medicine is. It shouldn't be that complicated. Um, before I let you go, I, I'm just going to ask you a very funny question that you're not expecting, but you reminded me a little bit of it when you're talking about out of the box. When I was younger, and I you know noticed the alphabet soup of you know just different medical degrees and things that people put after their name, I always thought MD was the gold standard, and DOs were kind of nuts. And then as I got into this, um, you know, business of healthcare freedom before COVID, really, when I was, 
you're working with a lot of the AAPS folks, uh, you know, American Association of Physicians and Surgeons, of you know, free market, innovative doctors. Uh, again, there's lousy DOs and there's great MDs, but I, I've, I'm seeing more and more that as a percentage, there seem to be more DOs that think. Am I am I getting that right? Hey, I sure hope so. Um, you know, there's good and bad of everything, and the DO philosophy is just a little bit. It was just a little bit of ahead of its time, right? It's that the body has the inherent ability to to heal itself, and structure and fu- function are intimately related. Um, so, everything that we're doing for early treatment just kind of folds into the osteopathic way. You know, giving the patient the choice, taking a holistic approach, because if somebody you know, if somebody's in the hospital and they're super anxious and you're creating anxiety because you won't give them a vitamin D pill, you're not doing holistic care for the patient, not to mention the medical side of it. So I think the DO approach, you know, is primed for for these times. You know, we've always been kind of the anti-system people. We are a minority of doctors in the country, um, but this is right up our alley. So I hope more DOs will be standing up and saying, I'm going to treat you. You're my patient. You know, we're heavily, uh, heavy percentages in primary care where there's a, a direct responsibility to patients. So I would love to see that. Yeah, you're kind of unusual being an ICU doctor, DO, but j- just so people don't think you're biased, I'll divulge a private conversation I had recently. I asked this question, exact same question to, to Ryan Cole, and he is an MD. And and he he agreed. He was like, "Yeah, I mean, these guys really seem to have gotten it right on this." And um, there's a lot to be said about the approach. And I think there might be something there to work with. I certainly know in my um, zip code, my area, we're trying to find a doctor who prescribes ivermectin. And the one guy I've heard so far happens to be a DO. It's just very interesting how that works out. Um, and and we need people that think outside the system, aren't as beholden to the system. Um, are willing to understand that um, not only is you know not everything that comes from HHS is is correct, but increasingly more likely it's incorrect, and uh, that that's the mindset. People willing to take risks. I think you truly embody that spirit. Um, again, your website is Ivermectin Can. Where where are you on Twitter, by the way? Uh, oh gosh, I I think I don't know. It's just my name, Dr. Molly James. <laughs> I don't You're worse than Twitter, me on so. that. Like I, I, I'm always like that, forgetting my stuff and you know, yeah. forgetting my name because there's so much. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much around there. But yeah, you could again go to Ivermectin Can, um, and you know, if you and guys want to sketch, that's, sure. That, that's a website I set up. So if it's not working great, I have a new one coming. But I just had to set that up to interface with patients. So forgive any technical glitches. Sure, sure. So, and, and by the way, on Twitter, it's at M-O-L-S James. So, um, M-O-L-S James, you could follow her, her there as well. Um, good luck in your endeavor. May God bless your work and allow you to save uh, all the people that our system is is leaving behind. And we look forward to hearing back from you again. Thanks so much. I wish as many doctors were, or the doctors were as interested in this as you are and doing what you're doing to save lives. That would make a huge difference. So thanks for awesome everything stuff. you're doing. I appreciate it. Keep it up. God bless. So folks, that was Dr. Molly James, uh, just terrific, terrific doctor. Uh, again, you can go to ivermectincan.com to schedule a consult with her as well. And we're trying to get everyone covered that we can. I do apologize. I can't get to every email or every person. Um, But for now, I I just will reiterate because I'm getting a lot of emails about this. One thing that is very much proven to reduce viral load and is very effective is the nasal and oral rinse. So obviously, you know, you gargle deeply with scope or act mouthwash. Um, multiple times a day if you think you're exposed. And certainly, if you're pretty sure you have the virus, you just do it every second you can. And in the nose, um, you know, again, prophylactically, I would do once or twice a day if you're around people. Um, You take 10% betadine, which is what comes standard if you buy povidine iodine in in the store, at a drugstore or something, supermarket, that's what it's going to be. It's going to be 10%. You don't want to put that up your nose. You want to dilute it to 1%. You take nine parts distilled water. You get one of those jugs of distilled water, very cheap, like a kind of like a regular water jug, but except this is distilled. 
because you're going to put it up your nose and you mix it in some sort of measuring cup, nine parts distilled water, one part povidine iodine, mix it together, put it in some sort of a spray bottle. What I do is I took some of my allergy, you know, nasocort type of spray bottles that I left over from the spring, uh, emptied it out, cleaned it up, put it in there, and then you have a user-friendly way of, of using it. And, you know, that is something that everyone can do until they start banning that. So, look, we're trying to do what we can. It's it's surreal that we have to spend so much time on this. But, again, if we don't have life, we don't have liberty, our, our liberty to live and survive. It's truly amazing watching how much medical attention is being given at our border now. You have babies being born to all these people crashing our border, and certainly they all get medical care, yet Americans can't even get... Um, stuff that they're willing to pay for just be made available and not be blocked by our government truly disgusting but again send this show very important uh, information to all your friends and relatives please give us a five-star rating on itunes till tomorrow god bless y'all and thank you for listening